So I'll read the passage that was assigned to me. So Matthew chapter 7, we're ending now the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, 24, Therefore whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell not for it was founded upon a rock and everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And then, of course, the postscript, and it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his doctrine, or his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. It's impossible to read these verses and not think about the children's song, of course. Many of you have grown up, I suspect, singing, The wise man built his house upon the rock. Yeah, if you all go to sleep, I'm going to sing again. Just watch out. <laughs> when the rains came tumbling down, the wise man's house continued to stand because it was built upon a rock. But when the rains came down on the house built by the foolish man, the house fell, splat, boom, it was gone, because it was built on an unsure foundation. I guess there's no need to spend time interpreting this simile that Jesus gives us, because it's just so obvious that a house that is built on a good foundation is more likely to stand against the winds, the rain, floods, all adversity, than the house that is built on sand. It's going to sink, it's going to blow away, it's going to collapse. Great will be the fall of the house that is built on an unsure foundation. The question then comes to mind, what does Jesus mean by house? Since it is a simile, I think you know what that means. Most of you know similes and metaphors, the Bible's full of them. A metaphor is a direct comparison. A simile is an indirect comparison that uses like or as. And Jesus uses a simile here. He compares a person's life, we might say, to a house. Building a life is like building a house. And there are some similarities. Building a life is a lot like building a house. I've not built an entire house with my own hands, though that was always a dream of mine. I've done a lot of building. A number of years ago, we built a large addition to our church, large by our standards, that is, and it was about the size of a, of a house. And I was told early on by some of the folks in the church who were managing the project that all we have to do is, uh, oh, it's about 1,500 steps and we'll be done. <laughs> That's what it takes to build a house, 1,500 steps, all done in the right order, in the right way, and craftsmanship applied in all of this, you have a house. Jesus is going to compare our life to this. Jesus is going to say that our life is like a whole series of steps. And um, the person who's wise uh, builds that house step by step by step by step on a great foundation. And the person who's foolish 
builds it on an unsure foundation. I guess that's enough about that, isn't it? Does everybody get that? Do I need to labor the point? This means yes, this means no. Clear on that point, I guess. Um, all right, so what I'd like to do is look at, I guess I'll look at three things as best I can. If we run out of uh, energy or time or good sense, we'll make it two things or one. Uh, three things. Uh, first of all, construction. First of all, everyone is a builder. We'll talk about that, the construction. Second of all, the cost. It is costly to build anything. And thirdly, the conscription. That is, there's an assignment connected with this, or there's a purpose, an end, and a goal, an assignment to which you have been conscripted. And I'll talk about that in the end, Lord willing. First, the construction. Did you know that the assignment I was given is not, are you building? It is, where are you building? It's an important distinction. Are you building? Yes. Where are you building? Now, that's the question. Every one of us is building. Young folks, really young folks, you're building right now. There will come a day when you'll be sitting around with some old friend and you'll say, remember that time back there, at, what was that church called down there in Alabama? Oh, yeah. Remember that night? There will come a time when the memory of this or something like this will come back to mind and you will be aware at that point that that little moment shared 30 years later, took 15 seconds to tell it, was part of the 1,500 steps you went through to build a life. The building happens step by step, and it starts now. You're not too young to be building. You are building if you are breathing. So Jesus doesn't say, or we, when we're thinking and responding to Jesus, we're not here saying, are you building on a foundation? The question is, where are you building and which foundation is it? Is it a foundation that is solid and secure, or is it a foundation that is sandy and insecure? Everyone is building. The construction occurs in a thousand tiny incidents every day. Along the way, in a way, each one of us, every single day, multiple times a day, stands before the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In a way, every one of us is right before that tree every time we face a situation that requires a moral judgment. Will I take of the apple or will I say no to Satan and yes to God? In a way, every one of us stands in front of the tree of life, the, rather the tree of knowledge of good and evil, multiple times every single day. And what you do before that tree determines something of how you're building. Now Jesus will connect this construction to two things, hearing and doing. You caught that, I suppose, from the reading. He will say, the person who hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him unto the wise man, hearing and doing. I think there are three combinations here. Um, there are people who, well, I guess we could say it this way. There are people who hear and don't do. We've all been in that category at some point in time, right? My son is not here tonight, so I can pick on him. He's nine years old. He doesn't like being a sermon illustration. 
I well remember when I got to that point, I begged my dad, please don't use me in a sermon anymore. And my dad would say, but if I needed to make a point. <laughs> and um, Aiden is the kind of guy who remembers everything you've ever said, except go clean up your room <laughs> or pick up those shoes. Be sure that underwear goes in the dirty clothes when you take it off. He doesn't remember those things. We've all been those who heard and didn't do, right? We know what that's like. Then there's another combination, those, um, those who, um, who don't hear and, and, and don't do. Now, that's a possibility, I suppose. Well, I didn't hear you. Pretty hard for us to pull that one off after two days of this intensive training, brothers and sisters. You can't stand before Jesus one day and say, well, I didn't hear, I didn't know. I didn't know that I was supposed to forgive, my goodness. And if I didn't forgive, I wouldn't be forgiven. I didn't know that. You can't pull that one before the Lord Jesus now. Because you see, we're not in that category. We now have heard. We have heard. And so we must do. But there are some who don't hear and don't do. There are some who do hear and don't do. And then, of course, there are those who do hear and they do do. Sorry, I just had to say it. They they hear and they do. Now that is the category to which we're being called this evening. The question is not, are you building? The question is, where are you building? So the, an important question comes to light uh, here with respect to what is coming next. Where are you building? What is coming next? So some of us tonight are building on the sand. Some of us are building on the rock. Some of us are paying attention, some of us plan to change, some of us hope for better days, some of us have been convicted, all of that. Fact is, the question has to be asked, what's coming next? In the text, it is interesting that the same things happen to both sets of builders. Did you notice that? This is a very different view than prosperity gospel thinkers. If you've ever been around any of these people, they might suggest that, in fact, if you come to Christ, everything is going to get much better. You probably have more money in the bank. Your health will improve. Things are going to look well for you. The fact is, the Bible does not promise such, for here it says that the wise man builds his house on the rock, and the floods never came because he was wise. Hmm, didn't say that. The wise man built his house on the rock, and the rains never descended. It was just sunny from then on. No. Instead, he built his house on the rock. The wise man built his house on the rock, and the flood still came. And the wind still blew, and they beat upon his house. Exactly like those things did on the foolish man's house. Now, I need not labor this point either. You know stuff is coming, right? One of the reasons we have to get together in sessions like this, brothers and sisters, is because we know that life is filled with challenges and difficulties. And if you live long enough, you're going to get old. And when you get old, your body is going to fail you, and it is going to feel like um, your body has rebelled against you. It's going to feel like betrayal. When, and, and then, eventually, you're going to stop breathing. It's going to be like your soul amputated your whole body. This is going to happen. But before that happens, for most of us, there are going to be a thousand other challenges and trials. Times that tear your heart completely out of your body and you don't think you can go on. What is coming? 
Well, the rains are coming. The wind is coming. Adversity. These are metaphors, of course, for dark times. Where are, your where are you building becomes much more relevant when we recognize that it is not Disneyland in which we're building. It is a broken, fallen world with much pain and much sorrow and much suffering, and this befalls the people of God as well as the others. When you go to the doctor and find out with your mom and dad, find out your mom has cancer, pretty serious. When you go to work and pick up the newspaper or whatever iteration of the news you nowadays might access and find out that the economy has taken its first steps in a major crash, and there's a phone call at two in the morning and there's been a car wreck. When your best friend moves away, that's a serious thing. Your best friend moves to another state or your best friend betrays you or your best friend decides to pursue gender reassignment and you don't believe in that. Or Iran or North Korea sharpen up their swords. I actually took the time the other day, I can't believe I did this, to watch a YouTube video on how to survive a nuclear attack. <laughs> All right, it's confession time, right? Preachers waste their hours sometimes, too. How to survive a nuclear attack. And there are ways, apparently, according to the author of that video. These countries sharpen up their swords. A lot of us may find our lives very, very different. Where you build makes all the difference when adversity comes, you see. Where you build makes all the difference in the world when adversity comes. Now, the simile is very interesting because uh, the hearer-doer, that is the person who hears and does, is a wise builder, is a wise builder. We are not very much in pursuit of wisdom these days, I'm sorry to say. Uh, education used to be about forming wise individuals. We don't hear that kind of talk anymore. Wise builders experience the same adversity, the same things befall them, but the house doesn't fall because it's founded on a rock. The hearer and the non-doer, can I call them that, the hearer who doesn't do, is a foolish builder, according to verse 27, experiences the very same adversity, no indication that it's more adverse or less, same adversity so far as we can tell, and the house fell, the Bible says, and great was the fall of it. The house fell and the fall was a great crash. That word great literally means big, Barney Fife Big. This is, sorry, most of you don't know that illusion. Big, really big. Ex in fact, it means exceedingly great and even loud and mighty. So imagine this house thunderously falling. The roar of its fall attracts attention far and, far and wide. Great was the fall of it. It is, again, Adam and Eve in some ways and reminiscent of the great fall in the Garden of Eden itself. The construction then becomes very, very important. We could spend a lot of time on the materials and all of that, but we'll not go there now. Let's look at cost for a minute. In case you're keeping track, this is really encouraging, friends, because we're on point two of three. <laughs> means we're almost done, half, halfway done. The cost is great and the stakes are high. The cost is great and the stakes are high. 
Now, we've been listening now about 10 times this week, uh, this uh, conference time, uh, as God's heralds, these men of God, have brought to us Jesus' words, and I'm wondering what we're going to do with all of this now. We can't profess ignorance anymore. We're not ignorant. We now know. We have heard. The question is, will we do? The question is, what does it cost to do this, and what will happen if we don't? This is that cost-benefit analysis part of life. You know how this works. Cost-benefit analysis. All of us do this. Someone says, you've got to do such and such, and we say in our heads, okay, all right, I guess I will because I would rather do it than to take the punishment for not doing it, okay? Cost versus benefit. We just analyzed that, right? We made a decision based on how much it was going to cost how much benefit I was going to get. Somebody tells me, you're going to have to eat a piece of carrot cake. And I'm going to say, I'm going to do a cost-benefit analysis. I'm going to study that for a minute and think it's a lot of energy to walk all the way back there to the kitchen and pick up that pan that's got the cake in it and get myself a piece and put it in my mouth and chew it. My mouth is so tired tonight anyway. A lot of cost involved in eating carrot cake. But then I think about the benefit of it. The mouth is well repaid for its effort. And I think this is a good idea, and I do it. Well, brothers and sisters, this is the way everything works in life. We do cost-benefit analysis all the time. You're doing it right now. Some of you are saying, well, there's, you know, it would be costly to get up and leave right now and make a scene. But I really wish I could. I'd really like to do that. Um, I'm thinking the same thing. It's like, it'd be great to just feline out of this room right now. And, 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 but the cost would be pretty great in terms of how embarrassing that would be. Word gets out. We do this all the time, not trying to just be silly. The point is, brothers and sisters, that we really do have a, a bent toward this, a, a cost and benefit examination of everything that comes our way. If Jesus says, deny yourself, we look at that and say, well, what do I get out of this? What is the benefit in this? The good news of the gospel is the benefit is enormous, in fact, even eternal. But what are the costs? We've seen a lot of them this weekend. This is big stuff we're talking about. This is not a sandcastle or a playhouse. Actually, the house that Jesus talks about, I think, is his kingdom. And we'll talk about that a little bit, but let's talk about kingdom first of all. You know, in the Old Testament, whenever the Bible talks about Israel being a, being a house of God... God building his house, building a house for his name. You know, in the Old Testament, there's this kind of language. What the Lord is really talking about is building a kingdom, a dynasty. His house is a kingdom. And in a way, I like to think about this little simile that Jesus gives us at the end of the Sermon on the Mount the same way. The individual who hears the words of Jesus and does them is actually building a kingdom on a solid foundation. Now, I said you're all building a house. Now, let's bump it up a notch. Actually, you are all building a kingdom. Did you know that? Each of us is building a kingdom. And the question, of course, is, is it going to be thy kingdom come or is it going to be my kingdom come? Is it going to be thy will be done or my will be done? We're all building a kingdom. This is big stuff at our school one of my colleagues likes to use as a catechism at the beginning of class every single day. He looks at the young men in the room and he says, young men, who are you? 
And these young men in the room reply, I am a king, for I rule myself. Now, that's, that's worth taking home right there. Young men, you are a king, for you rule yourself. You're a king of a kingdom, young men. And then he turns to the young ladies and he says, Young ladies, who are you? And their response is, I am a queen, for I rule myself. Young ladies, you're a queen. You're ruling a kingdom. You rule yourself. And the second question is even more meaningful. What does it mean to rule yourself? What does it mean to rule yourself? And the response in the catechism is, I am free to do good. I am not the slave of my desires. Young people, if I can push anything over on you before we depart tonight, I hope those words will stick with you. I'm going to say them again and then let you say them. What does it mean to rule yourself? I am free to do good. I am not the slave of my desires. If there's anything that characterizes our current cultural mayhem, it is I am a slave to my desires. Whatever I want, that's what I will pursue with all my might, regardless of the carnage along the way. But this says, wait a minute, I am a queen, I am a king, I rule myself, meaning I am free to do good and I am not the slave of my desires. I'm going to say it one more time and I'll ask you to repeat. <clears throat> what does it mean to rule yourself? I am free to do good. I am, free to do good. I am not the slave of my desires. I am not the slave of my desires. Amen, amen, amen. We must, we must tell ourselves, I am not going to be enslaved by my desires. So you're building and ruling a kingdom from the earliest time you emerge in this world. What kind of cost is there in this kingdom? Well, you might bear persecution if you're in the right one. If you're doing it the right way, you might bear persecution. Or you might have to pluck out an eye. Or you might have to turn another cheek. Or you might have to forgive someone or love someone who is your enemy. You may have to pray in secret rather than praying where people notice you. You might have to ask, seek, and knock a whole lot. You may have to put up treasures in heaven rather than treasures on earth. You may have to seek God's kingdom over your own. You may have to enter the narrow gate instead of the broad gate, as we just heard. All kinds of things like this. Do you realize everything I've just named is massively costly? Very, very costly. Cost in the kingdom is great, but the benefits are great too. Cost-benefit analysis, the benefits are great. Entering the narrow gate is actually kind of neat. Brother Timothy mentioned that. That's, there's something beautiful about that narrow gate. And the thing that, one of the things that makes it so beautiful to me is the beautiful people that enter the narrow gate. I like, I like hanging around these beautiful people that enter the narrow gate. It's a nice life. I've never once while I've been here worried that anybody in this room is going to steal my wallet. Isn't that cool? I've never, I've never thought that anybody in this room was going to go pilfer my car, try to steal my identity while I'm here. I've never worried about that because I, I love the kind of people that want to enter the narrow gate. There's some benefits to walking this way. Seeking God's kingdom over our own is really nice whenever the pressures of building your own kingdom are too great and you say, wow, I, I think I'm so glad that I'm not in charge of the whole world. Or putting treasures up in in heaven rather than in earth 
I mean, that's attractive in many ways because we've seen things on earth just come and go. I get a treasure and then it's gone. You notice how that works? You buy something that you've been looking forward to for so long, and it may even be there tomorrow. It may not, but even if it's there tomorrow or five years from now or ten years from now, what happens to the thing that you so wanted? The Toyota truck that, <laughs> the Toyota truck that Brother Jamie wanted so badly. Where is that truck today? Turned to rust, right? It's just destroyed. Laying up treasure in heaven actually makes good sense, we find out. Well, this is actually pretty good for our lives. Forgiving our debtors? Well, that's better than carrying all the stress of trying to keep up with all the people who are in debt to us. On and on and on we can go, you see, how the Sermon on the Mount just makes good sense. It, it is good sense. The Sermon on the Mount is lovely in terms of the ways that it blesses our lives while we're here. We're building our little kingdoms, hopefully on the solid rock, the little kingdom of our life, the little kingdom of our families, hopefully on the solid rock. And the Sermon on the Mount gives all this wonderful guidance on how to get there. We pluck out our eyes, and we pluck out our eyes if we have lustful problems, and it maybe saves our marriage. Pluck out our eyes, maybe it saves us for our marriage. And as Elizabeth Elliot said, uh, how did she say that? So that the wedding night is unspeakably worth the wait. That's the way she put it. So well said. Plucking out an eye can bless your life in all kinds of ways, brothers and sisters. But I mentioned that the stakes are high, not because it has to do with the 70 years that we live here directly. Yes, indeed, the 70 years that we live here are greatly blessed by following the guidelines of the Sermon on the Mount. No question about that. But Jesus bumps it up beyond that, my brothers and sisters, as we have heard this weekend. Jesus bumps it up even beyond this. We can walk back through the entire sermon and see how that indeed our lives on earth, our time here is blessed, enhanced, made better by simply obeying our Lord. But there are enough hints in the sermon and from the teaching of these two days to know that this sermon is not just about life enhancement during our three score years and ten. For example, I just want to say heaven and hell are topics in this sermon. Heaven and hell. That is, I firmly believe as Elder Bass pointed out last night, that God has elected a people from before the world began. The Bible teaches this. I believe that all those elect will be brought to faith in Christ through and by the work of the Holy Spirit. I believe that every one of those elect will per persevere in faith until they breathe their last. Not one of them will be lost. That whenever the Lord of glory gathers those ransomed sons and daughters home to Him, Every single one of the family of God will be there without the loss of one. Beautiful, beautiful truths. But one simple fact remains, and that is that God uses things like these warnings we've been hearing about to bring that about. Not all of it, but parts of it. It is the will of God that you be sanctified, as we learn today sometime. How does God do that? In part through the warnings of Scripture. When I first started thinking about the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, I remember asking my father-in-law, Elder Zach Guess, about that. And 
And I said, well, if, if the saints of God are going to persevere, and that's the program that God has established, why does he put all these warnings in the Bible? Now, I thought it was a perfectly logical question. I don't know if you're tracking with me or not, but I thought it was a great question. If God's going to make sure that we're all persevering, then why does he put these warnings in the Bible? And Brother Zach said, well, because God's Holy Spirit uses his word. God's Holy Spirit uses his word to help his children persevere, to carry out his purposes. I remember walking away, scratching my head, thinking, that is the dumbest thing I have ever heard in my life. Like, this is crazy. Uh, I was just uh, much, much too concrete, I suppose. But when you begin to realize that the Holy Spirit, God himself, and the Bible are not on opposite sides of the fence, brothers and sisters, they're, they're on the same team. The Bible and the Spirit, the Word and the Spirit are on the same team. It starts to reframe things for us. And we see here that the Lord Jesus Christ is giving us a word of warning. And the people of God are going to heed this warning. We're, we're, we're going, not perfectly, not every single time, but really, we're going to heed the warning. We're going to listen to what he says. And we're going to say, I don't want to build on the sand. I want to build on the rock. Much is at stake, friends. The stark reality is, in the end, the rock builders are left standing tall with a house that's intact. And the sand builders are left falling hard. Where do you want to be? The construction, some, a little bit about the cost, the mistakes. And now I'm going to end with conscription. <laughs> Is this the part that's most interesting to me, and it's obviously past all of our bedtimes at this point, so <laughs> it may be difficult to get to you, but... Help me out here, and I'd like to give you what I've got, then take it and please chew on it. Conscription. You may think that your salvation is exclusively for your benefit. You may think that. It's a pretty cool idea. I mean, that there's this cosmic force out there, you know, who has done something when I wasn't around, taking care of all the arrangements, and arranged and paid for, no less, a flawless vacation for eternity out there in the heavens. Great idea, isn't it? Wonderful thought. God is just taking care of all of it, and I am scot-free, and I'm just going to have a great time for eternity. Yes, that's true. All of that's fine. No problem with that, except this. God has business with you. God has business with you. It is not just about your getting your sins forgiven. Sins forgiven is prerequisite to being used in this great program God is involved in. There's a great big scheme going on. Did you know that? God has masterminded it, and he is in the process of building a kingdom himself. So what blew my mind when I was studying this passage was, Jesus tells us that we're supposed to build on a rock, not on the sand. And I turned around and I thought, good night. That's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus will not ask us to do anything that he himself does not do. What did Jesus do? Matthew 16, 18. Up on this rock, I will build my... On this what? Did you hear that? Jesus says, I myself. He's not giving us instruction now. He's telling us what he's doing. I will build my church where? Up on a rock. 
Satan, unfortunately, has built his house up on sand, and that will be proven. Revelation 18, lots of other places. Babylon the Great falls. All the people wail and mourn and cry and think, what happened to all the music? What happened to all the poetry? What happened to all the architecture? Babylon has fallen. Oh, no, it's a horrible, mournful thing. Babylon has fallen. Why did it fall? Because it was built on sand. Satan's kingdom is built on sand, <clears throat> which has crumbled up rocks, by the way. Very interesting. <clears throat> Same substance, just all crumbled up. Satan can't distinguish the two very well. <clears throat> Bear in mind that Satan does not have his own clay, nor does he have his own soil. He doesn't have his own rocks. He has to build on whatever he can find, right? I mean, you try to make a person like God did. <clears throat> Somebody said this one time, you know, make a person like Adam. And you get out on the ground, you start trying to form this little creature on the ground, and then you say, wait, 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 wait. You've got to make it like God did. Make your own dirt first. <laughs> Satan, go make your own dirt. I'm sorry, I don't have any, Satan has to say. He builds on the sand, the leftovers, the crumbled up rock, you see. Whatever there is left over somewhere, he builds on that and thinks his great colossal kingdom is secure. But we are assured in Scripture that Satan's kingdom is going to fall, and great will be the fall of it. Your little building of your kingdom that we've been talking about so far, your little attempt to say, yes, I've been in two days training now, I know about the Sermon on the Mount, I know how to build, your little building, brothers and sisters, is intended to be enfolded in the great big kingdom building that God is doing in this world. And that intent, brothers and sisters, is to take over the world. And I'm standing here in fear and trembling saying this because it is not, it is not, my friends, the kind of thing it is not the kind of thing that you can easily say in a world like ours right now and feel safe to say it. God is building a kingdom which is intended to take over the world in which one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There will be no person who stands up and says, not my president. That will not happen that day. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Jesus himself says, I will build my church. What is his church? His church is but the physical and visible presentation of his kingdom, which is maybe invisible, at least for the moment. His church is designed to be that thing which makes public that kingdom, which is maybe quiet and somewhat hidden at the moment. And so, friends, as Christ builds, Christ builds his church. Ministers involved, all of us are involved as Christ builds his church, he is building a kingdom on a rock which will stand. Daniel speaks of this in the Old Testament. King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and nobody could interpret it, partly because he wouldn't tell them what the dream was. He wouldn't tell them because he couldn't remember. It was a troubling dream and couldn't remember it. And then he asked all those people to tell him what the interpretation is. There's not a man alive who can do that. Can't tell us the dream, we can't interpret it. And then Daniel, of course, proceeded to do Give him the dream and the interpretation. And just a real short uh, Cliff Notes version of this. The dream goes, well, the part of the dream I want is this. In the process of that dream, a stone was cut out of a mountain without any hands touching it. Okay? Now, we can imagine this better than they could in Daniel's day. Lots of things happen in our world without hands touching, right? Technology is the new magic, right? We know about technology that can do things without hands touching it at all. But in this dream, very mysterious to this old king, 
out is cut a great stone from the mountain, and that stone is then hurled at an image that he has dreamed about, an image which represents the kingdoms of man. And when that stone hits that image, that image falls to the ground. Great is the fall of it, crumbling into pieces. And we are told in Daniel 2.44 that in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up, will raise up a kingdom which will break in pieces all other kingdoms. My friends, the fact is, when Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount, he conscripts people. The people who were listening that day and those of us who are listening this night, Jesus conscripts people to not just build their own little individual kingdom and have their own little individual family and their own little individual 401k and their nice little this and their nice little that. He conscripts people into a great big project which is intended to take over the world, a stone which is going to break in pieces every other kingdom that has ever been. Now, do you want to be in on that project or not? The Sermon on the Mount, see, the stakes are very high, very, very high. I'm praying that the Lord will help us, that we would see in these dreadfully dark days, that we would see an army of the people of God standing up like we never have before, fully engaged in the kingdom that God is building. Our kingdoms enfolded into His, our will turned into His, such that the glory of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. I say, well, this is just too big for me, Brother Thomas. I'm only six years old. It's not too big for you. Or you might be saying, it's too big for me. I'm such a sinner. You don't have any idea where I've been, what I've done. But remember, weak and wounded sinner, lost, left to die. Raise your head for love is passing by. This invitation, you see, to be a part of this glorious kingdom is an invitation issued in love. And love alone. For love is passing by. Might be like you're that little infant when you're a newborn babe. Don't be afraid to crawl. When you walk, remember sometimes you fall. You do. But fall on Jesus. Fall on Jesus. Fall on Jesus and live. <laughs> the only kind of people God has to handle this job that I've given you tonight, that Jesus has given us tonight, are imperfect ones. That's all he's got. It's imperfect people. May the Lord help us, imperfect people, to be empowered by the Jesus who's taken care of Everything that we needed, everything, for his own glory and our good and joy.